Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. All right, grab your phone or grab your tablet, or if you're really old-fashioned, your paper Bible, and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, there is a paper Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1171. I use a paper Bible still, FYI. Page 1171 in the pew Bible. And we are working our way through our sermon series that we've called Renovations, Being Transformed to Be Like Jesus. We are talking about the process of transformation that God is working in the lives of all who follow Jesus. That the day we said Jesus is Lord and we asked for his forgiveness and we began to follow after him, that's the day we were saved. And then one day we will be glorified. There will be a day where we see him face to face and we are completely and fully brought into his presence, either when he returns or when we go to be with him. But in between those two events, in between salvation and glorification, there is a process going on. And different streams of the church call it different things. It's sometimes called sanctification. It's sometimes called regeneration. It's sometimes called discipleship. It's all talking about the same thing, which is being transformed to be like Jesus. That even as we follow Jesus, we still have areas of our life and areas of our character that remain struggling with sin, that are not completely uh, redeemed and restored yet. And so we are on this process of renewal, where God is tearing down everything that is not good and building up everything that is good, that we would be people who reflect the character of Christ. We are calling this process spiritual formation, which is my favorite term for it, because it is just the reminder that it is the Holy Spirit who is doing the forming. I can't make myself more like Jesus. I can't change my own heart. I can't renew my own mind. The Holy Spirit does this work in us. Our job is to connect with him and partner with him in the process, but he is the one doing the work. He is forming us like the potter form, forms the clay to shave off our bad areas of character and to smooth out our good areas of character so that we are becoming more and more pure and more and more holy. A key verse for us has been Romans 8.29. For those whom God foreknew, he also pre destined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be transformed, to be spiritually formed, to become more like Jesus. That's the end goal, that all of God's people would more and more look less like their sinful selves and more and more like the perfect holy son of God, that we are in this process of our character being shaped by him. And so we've been using the renovation picture, and I really like the, the metaphor of it, that uh, if you've ever done a renovation project, certainly you've seen renovation projects being done. There's always kind of a tearing down that needs to happen. There is a removal of the old. And so when you look at the old kitchen or the old flooring or even the old paint on the wall, there is something that needs to change. There's a problem that needs to be fixed. And in a renovation project, you are making something beautiful out of what was maybe old fashioned or ratty looking or run down. There is something beautiful coming out of it. And so you are God's renovation project. He is doing his reno in your life. And as has often been said, we say God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay the way that you are. That there are still, all for all of us, areas of sin and areas of character that continue to be toxic to us, that continue to do damage in our lives. God loves us too much to let us stay there. And he is wanting to tear down all that is old and sinful and hurting and broken and wanting to build up all that is good and pure and holy and Christ-like in our lives. And it is an exciting thing to picture that end product. And so that is what we are focusing on today. 
Uh, last week, we talked a lot about sin, the sin problem. We went back to Adam and Eve in the garden, and Adam and Eve's story is ultimately our story. We are all struggling with the same temptations that they are. The details might be different, but the temptation is the same, and we are wanting to be able to understand that part that we are being formed from our sinful selves and being formed into a person who reflects the character of Christ. And it's a lifelong journey that we're on. And so a counselor a few years ago said to me, what we aim at, we tend to hit. And so we want to know what we're aiming at then in this journey. What does it mean to be a Christ-like person? What does it mean to be someone who is being transformed to look more like Christ? And there's lots of different passages that we could have chosen, but we've just chosen one that we're going to focus on today. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Galatians chapter 5. And we are starting in verse 16. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So again, lots of passages we could have chosen. Uh, we'll, we're emphasizing this one in Galatians today. And uh, it's interesting in the New Testament because we have these letters that were written to specific churches. And these letters have become part of our scripture. And each church that these letters are being written to, there is a story. Just like Meadowbrook Church has a story or any church has a story, these letters were often written in response to conflicts that were happening or questions that were being raised. And so the apostles would write these letters to these churches to clear up maybe a theological disagreement or to uh, talk about how we should be treating one another as Christ followers. And so as Paul writes the, the letter to the church in Galatia, this is a church that it seems, as you read the letter, was very much uh, on fire for Jesus. They had received the gospel. They had received the forgiveness of sins. They were walking in the freedom that that brings and all of the blessings. And it seems that they have wandered off course. It seems that where they had started off just understanding we are saved by grace and we are forgiven, that others had come in and they were saying, well, it's not just that. If you really want to be saved, you have to follow the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to do all these rituals and regulations. And so they were really struggling with, okay, so we're, are we saved because Jesus has forgiven us and we're following him? Or are we saved because we have to obey the, the scripture? Like, what's going on? And Paul writes this letter to clear all of that up and saying to them, guys, like, you, you understood you were doing great. You were walking in the freedom of the gospel. You were walking with Jesus. You were walking in the spirit. Like, why are you going backwards and now trying to, to get right with God through obeying all the rituals and everything that go with it? And so Paul is writing this letter, uh, and it's kind of a hard-hitting letter, and it's also really freeing. 
Uh, there's a lot of conviction of you guys are off track. You guys have missed it. You guys are moving backwards. You foolish Galatians, he calls them at one point. Like if I stood up and said, you foolish Meadowbrookers, right? Like he's, he's calling them back from the error that they're stumbling into. And yet you see his kind of fatherly pastoral heart coming out because even as he's pointing out these errors, he's wanting them to come to freedom. There's a lot of freedom called for in the book of Galatians. There's a lot of, of get back to the Holy Spirit, guys. Get back to Jesus. Get back to that relationship. Focus on that. And so there's a lot of both. There's a lot of conviction, and then there's a lot of liberty coming. And in this passage we look at today, there's a lot of conviction, and then there's a lot of liberty coming with it. And so there were many different passages we could look at as we talked about what is it to be like Christ? What is it to be like the King? What is it to be someone who shows off uh, who Jesus is in our lives. And so again, this is not the be-all and end-all of that. This is just one passage that deals with that. But we are going to walk through it today. So, off the top. So I say, Paul writes, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To me, that is an incredibly significant sentence. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't sin. So if we're trying to figure out how do I do better at not walking in sin, Paul gives us a solution right here. It's, it's right there. It's crystal clear. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. Some versions say literally they are at war with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. And so the word flesh shows up uh, often in Paul's writing. Sometimes in the New Testament, flesh uh, just means your body. Like when we say Jesus, the word became flesh, the word became embodied. Sometimes that's what it's talking about. But when Paul uses it, he's almost always talking about our sinful self. The part of us that still struggles with sin, the part of us that continues to wrestle, the part of us that even maybe knows the good that it's supposed to do, but doesn't always do it. As Paul talks about in Romans 7, he says, there's, there's good stuff I'm supposed to be doing, and I don't always do that. And then there's bad stuff that I'm not supposed to be doing, and I still struggle and, and still do that. I, I'm kind of caught in between. And so when scripture talks about flesh, that's usually what it's talking about in the New Testament, that the flesh is our sinful part. It is the part that has not been renovated yet. It is the part that continues to struggle to do what's right. And this picture of, you know, we are still ourselves, our flesh is still real, but the Holy Spirit also lives within us, who is pulling us towards what is good and what is pure and what is holy. And so there's this struggle, there is this conflict, there is this war going on within us between the Holy Spirit leading us into the good and our flesh that continues to struggle uh, with, with not doing those things and, and continues to be the battle that, that all Christians face in one area or another. If the flesh had a slogan, it might be, if it feels good, do it. And that's very much a cultural slogan, I think, right now. And it just, it wants what it wants. And it doesn't always consider the consequences. And it doesn't always consider uh, where the Lord is at or where other people will be affected. It just, it wants what it wants. The flesh wants what it wants. And, and we'll, we'll strive for that. Our renovation project is, is ultimately in that area of wanting that sinful part of ourselves to be torn down. And wanting what is good and godly to be built up within us. Uh, so whatever the flesh wants is sinful, Paul writes. The spirit wants what is holy. And the conflict rages as we try to, to wrestle through that together. In verse 18, he says, If you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. 
And the law means the commandments. It means the, the Old Testament law, which God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses came down. We talked about this a couple weeks ago with the commandments written in stone. And there are 613 different commandments, rules, rituals, regulations, all the things that God gave to his people and said, this is my standard. This is, this is what uh, I expect in a perfect life. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago, none of us have been able to live up to that. And so the law is there, and yet the scripture says here and elsewhere that in Jesus, we're not under the law anymore. That, that list of rules and regulations doesn't apply to us anymore. And I don't want us to misunderstand that, so I'm just going to stick on this for a couple of minutes, that uh, some Christians would twist that to mean that there are no standards for us anymore. There are no commandments for us anymore. We're not under the law, so nothing we do matter. And, and that's something that is more common than maybe you might think, where the attitude is, if we're all saved because of grace, and if everything I ever do is forgiven, then what matters if I do anything wrong, right? If I sin today, it's going to be covered. Woo! -hoo! Anything goes. It's the error that the first Corinthian church had fallen into in that letter, where in the name of freedom and, and grace, they were saying, well, anything is permissible. Anything is beneficial. We can do anything we want. It's all covered. And Paul to the Corinthians says, no, 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 guys, no, 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 no. Like, shall you keep sinning? No, by no means. In, by no means is grace an excuse for sinfulness. No. And so when he says you're not under the law anymore, he's not saying there are therefore no, no laws in the kingdom. There's therefore no commandments. There's therefore no standards. 1 John 3, 4 says sin by its nature is lawlessness. That God does set boundary lines for us, and every time we cross them, that is sin. And so we're not talking about if the fact that we're not under the law anymore means uh, anything goes, we can do whatever we want. There's no more boundaries. Hey, if it feels good, do it. That would be a huge error if we were to start thinking that way. So I use this picture. It's not a perfect one, but I, I kind of like it, where if Sarah and I are going out for dinner, uh, we need to get a babysitter, right? Our kids are not old enough yet. We're so close to that day when we can just leave them home. It's like a countdown until that day comes. But we have to get a babysitter right now. And so uh, sometimes it's grandparents, if grandparents can help. But if you have a babysitter, usually you leave some instructions for the babysitter, right? You leave some rules in place. If the grandparents are babysitting, they break the rules all the time. But you set some standards that say, here is bedtime, right? Here is this or that. So I found this online. This was very formal. But it was a way, if you were leaving uh, your kids with a babysitter, just some things to uh, just make clear what the rules are. So here is bedtime, here's what they can eat, here's what they can watch on TV, here's the friends rules, here's any other rules and restrictions. And so let's say I fill this out and I give this to the babysitter because Sarah and I are going out. Now, while we are gone, the babysitter is in charge, of course, but really it's the rules that are in charge, right? The babysitter is there to enforce mom and dad's rules unless it's grandma who does whatever she wants because she says, I've done this before, I know what I'm doing. So the rules are in charge. And to me, that's a bit of a picture of, of what the law was. Because scripture says the law in Galatians literally says the law was a babysitter until Christ came. The law was put in place temporarily, a list of rules, like a list of babysitter's rules. The rules are in charge until Christ came. Now, when I come home and relieve the babysitter and the babysitter gets to go home, the list of rules doesn't really matter anymore because I'm home. So I don't need to go, oh, when was bedtime again? Or oh, what was the rule about food? Like, I don't need to know that. They're my rules, right? I know what they are. 
So I don't need to live off a list anymore, and my kids don't need to run to a list of rules anymore. If they want to know when bedtime is, they can just talk to dad. And so this is a little bit about, a little bit similar to what the law was like. The law was put in place, the rules were put in place until Christ came. But when Christ comes, now he's just in charge face to face with us. The Spirit has come to live in us, and the Spirit shows us what is good and what is holy and what is wrong. The Spirit convicts us of sin. So my kids don't need to run to a rule list when I'm home. That doesn't mean there are no rules anymore. It just means the one who sets the rules is home now, and my kids are face-to-face -face with him, and so they can learn what to do and what to do just by walking with me. And if they're doing something wrong, I'll tell them. And if they have a question about anything, they can ask. They don't have to go to a piece of paper anymore. And so the law was put in place. The law was in charge until Christ came because we didn't know what God wanted before that. So the rules were there to show us what God wanted. So now that Christ has come, we don't need that anymore because now he walks with us and the spirit convicts us of sin and the spirit shows us the way we should go. And we would say, I mean, we still read the law. We still, it's helpful for us to know it. It's still scripture. It's still important, but it's not in charge anymore because Jesus is now leading our life. And so that doesn't mean there are no laws or commandments anymore. It just means the one who wrote the commandments now walks with us personally in relationship with us. And as he does that, he shows us the way we should go. Does that kind of make sense a little bit? So it's not that we're in this lawless time where, hey, we're not under the law, so we can do whatever we want. It's no, the one who wrote the law now lives inside us, and he is transforming us and leading us into holiness and leading us into purity. And so we, we understand that uh, the commandments that are being you know, lived out now, it's, it's not that they're gone. It's just that he's with us now, and that's better, actually, than the Old Testament. That's better than when you did just have the rules in place, because now we know the Lord personally, and everybody can know him. So Paul gives us this list in verse 19. The acts of the flesh, the, the works of the sinful self, are obvious, he says. Sexual immorality, and, and we believe that sex is meant for men and women in marriage. We believe that anything other than that is sin, uh, and that can also look like things we're doing online or, or different actions we can take. It can look lots of different ways. Impurity can be lots of different things. Impurity of thought, impurity of our words, impurity of our actions, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Uh, idolatry literally might not be something we do where we're bowing down to a statue, but idolatry can be anything that we exalt over Jesus in our lives. It can be our careers, it can be certain people, it can be lots of different things. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions. Like the, the Bible does not have a lot of patience for those who would be divisive, especially in a church. It's that we're, we're discerning together and moving forward together. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so one of the ways we're challenging you this year uh, is we're, we're called it a year of next levels, and we're wanting to look at what that looks like upwardly and inwardly and outwardly. Our walk with God, dealing with our stuff, and, and looking at how it impacts others. And so as part of the inwardly part, we want to really be honest and take a look at that list. And, and just so we couldn't look at that list and say, well, I'm not struggling with anything on there, so I'm good, he adds and the like on the end of the list, right? So it's not exclusive. But it's just a good starting point for us to look at that list and be just brutally honest with ourselves and take that look in the mirror and say, okay, where am I on that list? Where is there 
sexual immorality, maybe even just in my thoughts? Where is there impurity in what I'm feeling or what I'm saying? Where am I jealous or angry? Where is selfish ambition where I'm primarily thinking about myself? Where is that at work? And the like for anything that isn't on that list. So to be honest about that, but to take very seriously that last line, I warn you, he's writing to Christians, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That should feel like a heavy verse. It should. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that mean if we live that way, we might not be going to heaven? Yes, I think that's exactly what that means. That's not the only time the New Testament says stuff like that. And so what that verse is not, if you're on that list, and we all probably saw ourselves somewhere, if you're someone who's saying, okay, I, I see sexual immorality in my thoughts, or I'm working through a porn problem or whatever, but I... I know it's sin, I'm working on it, and sometimes it's two steps forward and, and two steps back, and, and I'm struggling, and I'm working at it. This verse is not talking about you, okay? If you understand, hey, I've got a bit of an anger problem for sure, uh, I recognize it, I, I see it, I'm trying to work through it, then this verse is not for you. This verse is for those who are living in the sin, who are not acknowledging it as sin, who are refusing to acknowledge it as sin. And again, it's not the only time the New Testament talks this way. And it gets hard because if you are living in a, a sinful place where you're not willing to acknowledge that it's sin, where you're not willing to change anything, the problem is, is that the gospel call actually isn't just believe in Jesus and, and trust in him. That is a key part of it for sure. But it's actually believe in him, trust in him, and follow him. And when it comes to your sin, it's turn, it's repent, it's get out of it. And if Jesus really is Lord of your life, then that calls you to a different reality. That calls you to a different expression of your life. That calls you to say, I'm taking his word seriously, I'm taking my sin seriously, and I'm working on it. So to say those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, again, if you're struggling with sin in your life, that's good, that's normal. The fact that you're struggling means that this isn't for you. But to say, I'm going to live in a sexually sinful relationship, or I'm going to live with my drunkenness, or I'm going to live a life of dishonesty and never deal with it, like that's where it gets scary. Because you're essentially saying, Jesus, you're not Lord of my life. Like I'm not, I'm not dealing with this stuff. And if Jesus isn't Lord of your life, that's where you don't go to heaven. So it's not about there's certain behaviors that can maybe disqualify. That's not it at all. It's that if Jesus really is Lord, then that calls you to change. That calls you to take it seriously. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Like just calling Jesus Lord is not enough. And we've emphasized so much in our kind of evangelical culture about you pray the prayer, right? You, you acknowledge your sin, you ask for forgiveness, you declare his, he's Lord with your lips, and you're good. And we miss this whole other section that James adds on that it's like, yes, you are saved by faith, by his grace, but your faith needs to show up in works still. Otherwise, your faith isn't real. Faith without works is dead. And so, again, if you are struggling with sin, that's awesome. That means you are on the right track. That means the spirit within you is working with the the you know, fighting against the flesh and moving you towards holiness. But it's the scarier part when that part shuts down. Paul would write to Timothy that, you know, our consciences can get seared after a certain point. 
And if you sin once, you feel the sting of it. And if you sin again, you feel it a little less. And if you sin a hundred times, eventually it stops feeling like sin. It doesn't even feel wrong anymore. And then you're starting to get into the scary place of I'm living in this now. And if that's you here today and you're living in this, the call, the good news, the wonderful news is you can turn from that, that your sin is not actually doing for you the thing that it, it is presenting itself as doing for you. The advantages aren't really advantages. It's actually killing you. But there's grace and there's freedom and there's forgiveness available for you today. The gospel call is still turn from it. Holiness is better. Purity is better. God's way is better every single time. It is always better. And so that part is scary. And again, that's kind of getting back into the, what's the problem that we're trying to, to see fixed in the renovation? What are we being renovated from? But then we get to what are we being renovated into? And Paul says, people who walk in the Spirit are going to be full of this, what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so if we are walking with Jesus, we should be able to look at that list and say, maybe not every single one and maybe not an equal measure, but we should be able to say, I am seeing change in these areas for the good over time in my life. So maybe it's, you know what, I, I still have a long way to go in patience, but I can recognize I am more patient than I was five years ago. Uh, I've got a long way to go in loving perfectly for sure, but I can see where God's love has been at work in my life over time. And so we, we have these and we want to be just as honest. Okay, well, where, where can I be grateful? Where can I be thankful to say, you know what? Uh, hey, I can see. We heard a great testimony a few weeks ago from Marissa of holding on to joy even in the midst of cancer, right? There's fruit happening even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of everything. If we're struggling with sin, these things can still be present. Where am I kinder maybe than I was? Or, or where do I see an area of my life where I have more self-control than I used to have? To be able to rejoice in that and be grateful for that. And yeah, maybe say, I understand I, hey, patience also needs some attention in my life, right? Or, or joy is something I would love to see some more of. And just being honest about that part. But it's interesting that Paul says, here are the works of the flesh, but then he calls this the fruit of the Spirit. Not the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And it's so important to our understanding because you and I cannot make fruit grow. Literal fruit or spiritual fruit. If you plant a tree in your backyard and you want to grow some apples, you can't make that fruit happen. God has to do it. He has to do it. God creates life and God sends the rain, and God sends the sun. And so God is the one who is doing the work to make the fruit happen. Now, we can certainly cultivate it. We can create a, an atmosphere. We can build a garden. We can weed. We can prune. We can do things that create an environment where fruit can thrive. And it is the same with our spiritual life. We do that as well. But God is the one who grows natural fruit. God is the one who grows this fruit in us. And it is as we walk with the Spirit, as we are filled with the Spirit, as we connect with the Spirit, these things will come. He will grow these things in our lives. He is the one who is doing the work. And so if you look at these two lists side by side, the list on the left is the list of the sinful acts of the flesh that he has talked about. The list on the right is the fruit of the Spirit. Like you'll notice the difference between the two. And this was just a light bulb for me this week in prep and in prayer is that the sinful list is a list of actions that we do. 
The list on the right, the fruit of the Spirit, are not actions that we do. And you would sort of think that that would have been a logical way to do this, that, well, if the, the act of the flesh is sexual immorality, then the fruit of the Spirit is sexual purity, right? If the act of the flesh is dissension, then the, the fruit of the Spirit would be unity. And if the act of the, the flesh is drunkenness, then the fruit of the Spirit would be self-control or whatever. Self-control is up there. But um, to, to look at the list side by side, you go, it's just so interesting that, that the works of the flesh are things that we do the fruit of the Spirit are not things that we do. The fruit of the Spirit are deep, broad character qualities that God grows in us. But here's what happens. As the fruit of the Spirit grows more and more and more and more in our lives, then the behavior will follow out of that. Because if I'm growing in God's love, if I am being filled with the Spirit and His love is growing, I'm not going to go look to sinful things to try and find that love in my life. If I'm filled with God's peace more and more, and his, his peace is filling me, and I'm becoming more and like him in peacefulness, then as that happens, I'm not going to be looking to alcohol. I'm not going to be looking to, to other things to try and give me that false sense of peace. And so it's so profound that God is saying, yeah, there's sinful stuff that we do, but the fruit of the Spirit is not primarily behavior modification. It's not just when you walk in the Spirit, do these things now. It's no, walk in the Spirit. God will develop these things in us. These fruit of the Spirit will grow. And as the fruit of the Spirit grows, they'll push out the need to look to sin to fill those things in our lives. Because he'll be doing it in us. It's better, guys. So much better. He's doing something so much deeper than just, hey, work harder on this. Right? That was a lot of holiness teaching when I was growing up. Right? You're jealous? Well, don't be. Super helpful. Thank you. Right? You're having thoughts you shouldn't have? Well, stop. Just stop having them. Just work harder at, at not having them. And there is an element of that, like, that's the self-control. But yeah, we do have to make choices in everything. But to say, you know what? Holy Spirit, grow this fruit in me. Right? Because when I'm full of your patience, I'm not going to be getting angry at everybody. Right? When I'm full of your goodness and your gentleness, I'm not going to be blowing up at people. When I'm full of your self-control, there's all sorts of sins I can avoid when I'm full of your self-control at work in my life. So God wants to do something so much deeper in this reno than just focusing on behavior modification. As the fruit of the Spirit comes, the behavior will follow. The godly behavior will flow out of the fruit of the Spirit at work in our lives. And so when Jesus comes, the promise given to us isn't just, I'm going to forgive you your sins. The, problem, the, the promise that he gives is, I'm going to free you from your sins. It's not just, hey, everything you've done has been wiped clean, and, and as you trust in me, your sins are forgiven, and as far as east is from the west, I'm going to remove them, and I will blot those things out, and I will remember them no more. That's amazing, right? Just that's enough to be thankful forever. Your sins have been forgiven and wiped clean. But there's even more to the promise than that. It's not just your sins will be forgiven. It's that I will give you freedom from them so that you don't do them anymore. I will transform you so that that struggle within you between flesh and spirit is happening less and less and less. And the more spirit you take in, the less flesh is going to rise up in you. It's not just forgiveness for sins. It's freedom from sin. That's even better. That's such an incredible promise that he gives us. And so Paul wraps up the way he starts. He says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Since the spirit has now come to live within us, our job is to walk with him. 
Our job is to say, Holy Spirit, come. Our job is to seek him and seek his filling in our lives. Our job is to seek to know him more and more and to know his presence and to know what his voice sounds like. And again, lifelong journey. In the weeks to come, we'll talk very practically about how we can do that. But Paul kind of brings it all around. Uh, someone after the first service said, this passage punches you in the face and then lifts you up and sends you on your way in a really hopeful way because he has come to set us free. We said that week one, the Holy Spirit comes to bring us into freedom. So our job is to know what, what that looks like. And again, we'll get very practical. But Paul gives us the solution. You want to sin less in your life? The solution is found in Galatians 5. The solution is given to us to walk more in the Spirit. And that's so key because just that reminder that we are not doing this by ourselves. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So that's the Spirit who lives in you right now already, if you've said yes to Jesus. He's in you already. And he has come to give you power. He's come to give you his love, and he's come to give you self-discipline so that you can walk this holy life. We don't do this by ourselves. Come on up, guys. We're just about done. So we've called 2020 at Meadowbrook Church a year of next levels. We're just, we're wanting to go deeper. We're not wanting to do just the same old thing. We're wanting to go deeper in our walk with him, deeper in our understanding. We're wanting to be more mature. We're wanting to focus on that. So everything we're doing, we're doing it to that end. And we've challenged you all continually to be thinking about what does it look like to go to the next level upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. So upwardly meaning in our walk with God, inwardly meaning in dealing with our stuff, and outwardly meaning how we are engaging with our brothers and sisters in Christ and in the world around us. So as we reflect on that and as you go and start to, to pray about that this week, um, just a few thoughts to, to help you. Uh, you got to kind of figure out the application yourself, but um, just some things for you to be thinking about. So upwardly, uh, where are you seeking the Holy Spirit in your life? Where is the filling of the Spirit happening? Because we are told in Scripture, be continually filled. It's not a one-time thing. There is a continual filling that needs to be happening. So where is that happening for you? And if it's not happening, where might it start? And we'll talk a bit about this in the weeks to come. But where are you actually carving out time and space in your life to be filled with the Holy Spirit? If he is the solution that Paul talks about in the passage today to walking less in the flesh and being transformed into his fruit, if he's the solution, then he has to be a priority for us. He must be a priority. So where is the Spirit filling us in our lives? Where are we seeking Him? Where is that happening? Inwardly, it's taking that stock, and we talked about it last week as well, the honest look at what needs renovating in my life. Where is sin still at work? Where do I see myself on that list that we looked at? There are other lists in Scripture that list sins as well. That's just one of them. But what is it going on inside of me? Can I be honest with myself about what it is that needs to be renovated? Can I also celebrate and be honest about my about where I'm growing. Be honest with myself about, hey, you know what? I I understand. I like just personally, I still have a long way to go in patience, but I can see where patience has grown in my life over time. I, I'm not bragging. I'm giving God the glory for that. To be able to say, you know what? I, I don't worry as much as I used to. I am learning more and more to be filled with his peace. And I can thank Jesus for that. So to be able to both be honest about what needs work, also to celebrate about what he's doing and, and what, where he has been at work. And then outwardly, to just continually be thinking about what role have other people played in my own formation and what role will they play and what role will I play in theirs? Because we've been saying throughout renovations are almost never a solo project, right? 
right? There's usually a team involved in doing it. And so other people have a role to play in, in your own journey, and you also have a role to play in other people's journey. And so that role might mean if we see a brother or sister who is walking in those sins, walking in something there, it might mean we need to have a conversation with that person and just say, I am concerned about this in you. And, and let me help you. How can we work on this together? That second part always needs to be a part of it. It's never anyone's job just to point out things and then say, I'm done, I've done my part. If you're pointing it out, you are signing up to help. And so sometimes we need to love each other enough to do that and say, I'm concerned about your anger right now. I'm concerned that I keep seeing it flare up, or I'm concerned about this relationship that you're in, or I'm concerned about this attitude of your heart. We, it's not fun, but it's, it's part of loving each other. Uh, we need to love each other enough to have those tough conversations. The funner part of what we do for each other is just cheer each other on, to be able to say, hey, I see more patience in you, right? Not just about self-evaluation. I can see where you're growing in love. I can see where you're growing in joy. I can see where God's at work in your life. I can see where prayers are being answered. We have to do that for one another as well. And it's one of the funnest parts about walking in community is being each other's cheerleader and being able to help spur one another on and encourage one another in this journey. So those are some things for you to think about this week as we go about. We do have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca, and that's just if you have any questions about the sermon, if you want to keep chatting about it, we're very happy to do that. Just shoot us an email and we'd be happy to keep going. So John the Baptist came before Jesus. He came, his job was to prepare the way, to get the people ready that the Messiah was coming. And he makes one of the great statements that we can offer as a prayer anytime. It's always appropriate to pray this thing that John the Baptist said, which was that Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. My flesh needs to go down. Christ in me needs to rise up. Jesus needs to be glorified in my life. Jesus needs to be exalted in everything. I need to become less. And so that is part of this, this struggle of spirit and flesh is, okay, Holy Spirit, come more then. If, if you're the solution to sin in my life, I need you more. So you come more. You increase in my life. Let my flesh, let my ambitions, let my desires decrease as you do your work. And maybe that's a great starting point for us, is just to start praying that prayer. Holy Spirit, increase, and may my sinful self decrease in my life. As you're considering this this week, praying about it, meditating on it, just remember, any renovation project, it's usually a little messy. It's not always fun, every part of it. Uh, often the price is higher than we thought it was going to be going in. But if we can keep envisioned where this is going, right? Like when you're in the, the mess and the sweat of a gutted kitchen, you're thinking of, oh, this is going to be so beautiful when it's done. Right? The way this is going to look at the end is going to be so incredible. And that's our job in our lives here. If all we're doing is focusing on where we're struggling and stumbling, it's just going to be depressing all the time. But if we can say, no, Jesus is forming us to be people who are full of love and full of joy and full of peace and full of patience. That's who he's making us to be. That's going to help spur us on and help us spur one another on as we keep our eyes fixed on the final product. This is who he's making us to be. This is his desire. We're going to close in worship, I'll ask you to stand with me, please, and then we will pray together. As we celebrate who Jesus is, as we celebrate what he has done, as we celebrate the work he is doing in us, let's lift our voices in thanks as he is making us into who he has called us to be.